Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. On the programme, the story of a landmark Irish publishing house. Sarshiel Augustil was almost a household name in Ireland for decades, recognised by generations of students of Irish and lovers of the language. Tonight we hear the story of the publishing house as told in a new book, but first let's hear lines published by Sarshiel Augustil and I'm sure familiar to many of you. Gan broger hanalene, gan biela kanagaeli. Ach fasen cloke er gachtrin, se tirschatrine chele. Es lauter tanger hulen ti, nar higene arachesop. Es tashe shoot sich redish. Tai kerke aun es al shikin, es lacharin vohelach. Es geir mor duv mar naut se tir, a dranelegachene. Is cut a crony grain. The Hedimron Vroger than Gedur and Madden, Foshke Hefwite, Shodin than Lahar, Mirold Hiresir to Sihed Scott than Vashan, Redrig Vog Vla for Narhakin Kammer, and Hed Vrograv Ergoshin Mella. Vini no Christig, Holata Sattelt, Boylan Baum no Sogatown Redalov, Togan Kown Glotego Clochus of Tangan. Lenevin firtuid hjul is it hasav, ir de moglun is holos oig machtwem. Thar aguana kire, di yem shon spoye, sigun is hev amrohole, mbin yanuem, sinyarach hir. Thar ka clear of the rim, is in yamun yarag lunru dany of grene rulin wain. Nyevrochen Ryark, Senyarach Hir. Mona Alohain, in Yachter Dira, a goatee crappy, scaly his foe. Tauverayark Sheikh, Senyarach Hir. Taul Willy Fanna, Egmadi Rava. Korochlan Esh, Kitachtchen Kladde. Ed or wee wall in your way, Senyarach here. Lines there from Kulan Chi by Sean O'Reardon, on Cade Rogue by Maura Wakathy, and on Tarak here by Marcin O'Diron all poems published by Sarshil Augustil. And I'm joined in studio by Kiano Hegarthe and Eileen Nickarald, son and daughter of the founders of Sarshil Augustil, Sean and Breathe O'Hegarthe, and by Alan Titley, Emeritus Professor of Irish at UCC. Kiano Hegarthe, tell me first of all about the background to the setting up of Sarshil Augustil and your parents' idealism in the relatively early days of the new Irish state. Around about 1945, 46, 47, in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. My father was then Sean O'Hagerty, a civil servant just embarking on his career. He had recently married my mother. They had one child, me. Uh, there was another one coming along in a few years' time. They were renting a house in Dublin and just getting started as any young married couple would. Now, Sean O'Hagerty was active in a university magazine called Core which published the work of a lot of young writers. There was a kind of a boom in writing during the war years. 
And he was aware that a number of these writers had the materials which could have made a book. Were there a suitable publisher available? But at that time, there was really only one shop open for people who wanted to publish work in Irish. That was the government publications office in Goom. And Goom had a poor reputation as being conservative, careful, very slow. And then, more or less out of the blue, he received what was really a small legacy, £300. And that made it just possible to think of publishing a book or two. And so he did. And this legacy, of course, links to the name, uh, Sarsha Lucas-Dill. That's right. It came from an elderly aunt whom the family knew as Dill. She was, she was actually Lizzie Dill Smith. And the Dill harks back to a family of Presbyterian divines, upright people who certainly wouldn't have bothered publishing poetry, put it like that. But they were good people. And uh, my father decided to perpetuate the name, seeing as it was their money which helped to pay for it. Um, Eileen, tell me a little bit about your parents, both remarkable and determined people, it would seem, and both from rich and mixed backgrounds. It's, it's striking that the way their story and family history is interwoven with the story of the publishing house in this new book, largely, I assume, because they were all so interconnected. Well, you say they're a rich and varied background, rich in variety, uh, rich in money, I wouldn't quite say. My father's parents, one of them came from Cork, P.S. O'Hagerty. He was known as a historian. He was also a member of the Irish Republican Brotherhood from 1910 to about 1915-16. He married a woman from County Derry in Coolrane, a minister's daughter, Wilhelmina Rebecca Smith. She had got scholarships to uh, go to university in London. One of the early women to gain a degree in in chemistry, an honours degree in her own right. And they had met up, I think my, my, my great aunt Dill, along with the other ladies with whom she shared accommodation, they would hold court, if you like, or open house, I think, on Thursday evenings and Sundays. And a lot of young intellectuals would come in. And of course, my grandmother was living in that house as well. And she met my grandfather there. And they had quite, a, I suppose, a turbulent courtship. They had very different backgrounds. Their families didn't really approve of the match on either side. But they managed to make a go of it and eventually ended up living in Dublin. My mother, on the other hand, her father came from County Meath, another Republican. His people had been farmers who were basically dispossessed around the time of the Fenian uprising. They went to England, but they did manage to come back and get possession of a small farm. And her mother, Breed Branagh, was from uh, County Galway. She was the daughter of a school teacher and indeed uh, a trained school teacher in her own right. Now, both sides of the family reared their children Irish-speaking and firm believers, I suppose, in doing the best you can for the community and the country in which you live and always doing what was right according to your own conscience, I think. In many ways, there's this strain of independent thinking. I suppose pretty unorthodox at the time. Your parents, while they may have had their own set of beliefs and clearly did, uh, were not tied to an orthodoxy of religion. That's right. My grandfather in Cork fell out with, I suppose, church authorities when young men were being excommunicated from the church on grounds of republican activity and things like that. And I suppose my grandmother, the Presbyterian community she grew up in was very much a fire and brimstone version of religion. So they didn't either of them 
subscribed to the authorities. Now, they both felt that their own beliefs were very much a private matter. So they didn't flaunt religious beliefs, but because they didn't respect the the views of any hierarchy in particular, it caused a lot of difficulties for them because people didn't trust something like that. It was new, it was different. And there was always, I think, a degree of suspicion that their motives might be not be quite right in some way. Cian, your, your father uh, studied science in Trinity and as auditor then of On Common Gaelic in Trinity, I think he uh, was instrumental in de Valera's first visit as, as Taoiseach to Trinity. That's right. He invited him uh, to speak at his inaugural meeting. I don't know why it was Dev's first visit. It seems a long time after he was elected Taoiseach, but it was his first visit. A few years earlier than that, when my father was an undergraduate, he was instrumental in stopping the practice, which hitherto had taken place every year at at commencements of God Save the King being played. My father went to the provost in advance of the ceremony and pointed out very quietly that this would be a breach of neutrality at the time. This was 1940-41. And the provost coughed and spluttered, but he took the point. (laughs) And God Save the King wasn't played any later. My mother would have been more inclined, I think, to walk out, but my father was a measured man, and he believed in making a case to the proper authorities where you could. But on both sides of the family, just leading on from what Elin was saying, there was a tradition of making up your own mind and standing by your beliefs. And on my mother's side, there were two or three instances of teachers losing their jobs because they didn't get on with the parish priest or they didn't get on with the educational authorities. And that was kind of built into the family DNA, I think. And when it later came to standing up to government departments or censors of one sort or another, they weren't inclined to give way to things that they felt were wrong, even when the consequences were bad for them. Alan Titley, Kean mentioned there on Goom, its policies, you know, worthy and all the rest of it, but certainly <coughs> deeply limited. So here are these idealistic young people wanting to start a, a publishing house. A remarkable time as well in terms of post-independence Ireland and this cusp of change. I, I think in the first instance we should maybe not entirely condemn on Goom because certainly in the early years of Goom they were quite revolutionary and they produced a wonderful series of translations that were often looked down upon. I mean there's a wonderful translation of Dracula. Uh, there's fantastic, there's a big translation, David Copperfield translation of the French from the Russian uh, and so on and they still are wonderful reading material but what happened on Goom they actually had the same difficulties as other publishers had with printers because on Goom didn't print the books themselves it was Uffigan Talahir that the publications office who were doing it and of course during the war there was no paper and very few books were being being published by anybody and particularly by the state and that's where they had become tired and stodgy and stuck in the mud if you like and that's why Saw Schilling's Dill was such a revolutionary thing to do and they were very conscious as well, I think, of design and of shape and of the cut of the book. And those of us, for example, who don't use Kindle and don't use uh, iPads that much, uh, we still love the cut and shape and smell and freshness of a new book. And I think Sean Eckert and Breed were entirely conscious of this because that was one of the first things that struck you about a book. I remember when I was in secondary school, 
just beginning to look beyond the Leaving Cert, if you like. And I remember um, going through the small library we had in the school and coming across Dian Vuilte Day, a novel by Diarmid O'Sullivan. I didn't get to read it then, but I remember looking at this and there was a beautiful cover on it, beautiful paper, lovely print. And then we had a wonderful teacher as well in fifth and sixth year, Abar de Hurdel, uh, who brought in Brosna, a collection of poetry by Sean O'Reardine. And this was not on the course. There was no sign of Sean O'Reardine being on the course whatsoever. Uh, but he was a revolutionary teacher and he would do stuff that we didn't have to have for points or for honours or anything like that. And I remember he's saying to us, well, you can meet this man downtown. He's there because this was, this was in Cork. And later on then, I remember when I went to St. Patrick's College and you began to really read because you wanted to read interesting stuff rather than boring education, psychology and methodology and stuff. And I remember coming across Crane Killer, and this was one of the earliest publications and again, the most unusual with works, with drawings by Charles Lamb, uh, and of course, then the, the explosive opening and so on. So, Sorchelig's Dill were part of the world of anybody who was being interested in Irish literature. And I think, particularly in the 50s and the 60s, when there was virtually nobody else until the mid 60s, when other groups came along, like like Unclohor and one or two others, basically everything was left up to Sorchelig's Dill, and that's what makes them so important. Kian, um you have a spread of, of books uh, here with you and iconic images. And I remember some of them so vividly, you know, the impact they had. I mean, it was remarkable, the, the vision that, that your parents had. It, they worked with many artists. I mean, Anne Yates, Nano Reed. They, they brought so many people in. In, in what must have been a, in a, a kind of an exciting surge of, of artistic creativity. Well, this was one of my father's core beliefs. It was hard enough to sell work in Irish to a somewhat reluctant public, and you had to make the books look attractive. And the cover is the first thing you see, so you need a good cover. But, I mean, if you look, one of the things I have here is Liam O'Flaherty's Dool, Short Stories, which is a book that generations of schoolchildren will know. What happened there was that Liam O'Flaherty had a friend who he thought would do a very good cover. My father said, fine. The friend produced the cover. My father said, look, this won't do. We have to get another cover. We have to get it quick. Uh, I wonder, would Anne Yates ever try her hand? Anne Yates was his sister-in-law, but she was an established artist. So they went to see Anne and said, would you, would you consider a book cover? And she said, well, what do you want? So they explained that the title of the book was Desire. And Anne produced this wonderful cover with the word Dool, desire, spread across a grey background. And if you put it in any company, on any shelf, on any Vivid red. You see it in vivid red. Now, as it happens, the story concerned was about the desire of a child for a beam of sunlight. It had nothing to do with the sins of the flesh, but it was still a wonderful cover. And right through Saoirse Ligastil's history, even when money was very short, my father never descended to putting out the books just any old way. It had to be done right. Yeah, and, and, and there were some absolutely wonderful books. The book by Princess McConnell and Michal MacLeam or Scaleach which is modern Irish versions of old Irish stories. It is still a beautiful work of art. And every one of the covers as well, they'd be quite simple. I mean, Michal MacLeamor's blog is Tyveshire. People don't often know that Michal MacLeamor was a poet. But the cover is typical MacLeamor. It's kind of a golden goddess, as far as I can see, with his name around it on a green background. So it seemed to be appropriate. And... Brusna, for example, that I mentioned again, its a, its a colour looked kind of brown, but Brusna means kindlings, little bits of twigs. I, I have Brusna here with the cover by Paul Funge, and which is Sean O'Reardine's second book of poetry. 
I was trying to analyse why it works so well, and I don't know why, but I think it does. Taking everything together, it was one of the latest books that my father designed from top to bottom, and I think it was one of his best. It's a small book that goes in your pocket, but every part of it is perfect. Here I have, which Alan mentioned as well, Michal Makliumor's Blahagas Taivsha. Now, this is an example of the kind of meticulous care that my father took, which nobody else will ever understand. Makliumor who was quite a demanding individual in many ways, gave him the poems and gave him some wonderful illustrations to go with them and said, I want the paper to be off-white, please. Not cream, not white, off-white. And if you look, you'll see it is just that shade of off-white so that it doesn't stare at you. And he said, for the cover to be most effective, the cloth has to be a particular shade of olive green. Now, if you know... The, the edition of Salome by, by Oscar Wilde, published in London in, I think it was 1919, that's the colour I want. Now, it so happened that my grandfather had that particular issue of Salome, and that is the colour that he has on Blahog's Thaifia. And, and as Keane said, yeah, you, you look at the cover first, you, you judge the book by the cover uh, in some ways. The print in the books was always very beautiful and elegant as well, and I think it's a very important part of, obviously, mm-hmm. hugely important book, the print, and the print seems to suit different books along the way. And of course that came, we, we haven't really mentioned school books and schools for young people, and I think in one way one of the tragedies of Sorcerer's was that when they started publishing for schools, and you would expect then to be able to make money. I think it says there were 84 secondary schools who taught subjects through Irish at the time and that was in the 1950s and of course that went into decline through the 1950s and particularly in the 1960s and so therefore uh, the books the, the market wasn't there. When I was in secondary school we did um, John A. Murphy's Star in the a European History was one of the books I beautifully produced I can still remember the print, I can still remember the photographs and it was very very well written, it was densely packed and it, it was very useful and that sold quite a, a lot of copies as well so and then there were the books for children I'm looking at one here, beautiful books. And if you could, in any way, and it wasn't their fault, but if you could if you could say what went wrong was that they were trying to do too much and they were trying to do children's and they were trying to do schools, they were trying to do novels, trying to do poetry, trying to do history, trying to do biography. And it would have been, if things were right, it would have been better that each different publishing house when they grew up would kind of stick or at least emphasise one. In in latter years after Sean died and, and Breed and Cian were were largely instrumental in working. I think the policy was to do one or two big important books per year and then maybe less important ones as well. Because yeah, in a sense, this was the, the vision that your parents had and, and wasn't supported, wasn't quite matched by, uh, by even what was possible in terms of the state at the time. My father certainly became overextended. There's no doubt at all about that. And it, it became clearest in relation to the, to the textbooks because of all things that you set out to publish, they are tied to deadlines. Therefore, you just have to get all your ducks in a row. And that means that you have to pay everybody by the due date. And the amount of capital it absorbs is colossal. And my father understood he had a deal with the Department of Education, but he did not establish it with sufficient certainty, I think, and did not have the kind of document that he could have taken to a court and required them to deliver on. I mean, my grandmother, his mother, told him at one time, and she was an idealistic woman, she said, the trouble with you is you are blinded by idealism. You don't always understand the commercial basis of life. And I think he underestimated He was one of those who took Pierce at his word. Do it and the customers will follow. 
So he did it, and the customers did follow, but some distance down the road and not quickly enough, and some of them didn't pay their bills, and that's the way it went. But at the end of the day, the books are there. And you know, the, the archive is in, in Trinity College, that link to Trinity again, very important. There was an exhibition, I think, was it in 1972? There's a collection of the books in Trinity. The, the archive of documents has not yet been placed. We will be finding a home for that, I hope, in the not-too-distant future. But um, there is a full collection of all of the editions of all of the books in Trinity, consequent on the, the exhibition which Paul Pollard organised there in the early 1970s. As well as that, a lot of the books are actually in the county libraries here and there throughout the country. Now, they're very much on the back shelves, but if people did want to read them, they can go in and ask for them, and they, they, I'm sure they would be retrieved here and there. And I went back and I reread many of them when we were working on this book, and I was pleasantly surprised at how readable and how interesting they were, even now, 60, 70 years on from when some of them were published. Eileen, it's it, what's also clear from your own book is that your mother in particular was really keen that people, as Kim was saying, that people would be paid, that artists would be paid and that writers would be paid properly. And that, that must have been quite a struggle in the landscape of the time. And it was a concept, I was struck that I think it was in 1969, your mother in a letter talked about the devastating lack of money that they'd constantly worked with. I suppose the the £300 that my father started out with had long since been exhausted. And in 1952, Board Nileor Gaelga was set up by the government to provide some grant aid for books in Irish. And that did help. And it would have helped if, if a publisher had stuck to just a small number of books each year for which there would be a huge public. But of course, Sarchelle Augustil did feel they were trying to nourish a, a big reading public and a big reading public needed a variety of books so they published every kind of thing they published plays for example where uh, it was important that they be available for the amateur drama groups but the drama groups would purchase one copy or even borrow it from a library and write out all the parts by hand then for the different actors so very little ever came back either to the author or to the publishers on those but they always made a point of paying the writers Now, at the time, it was thought that uh, a person who writes in Irish should be lucky to have an audience and to have his work printed or displayed or read aloud on the radio. And my parents felt very strongly that they should be paid at the going rates of the time for that. And in their standard contracts, there was a, I suppose, a clause that they were entitled to, I think, originally 10% to a certain number of sales and then 20% after that. The Board and the Lower Gaelga Grants stipulated that they would get 20%, I think. And so once that was on stream, an author could get maybe up to 30% of the selling price of a book. But it was never enough for a writer to make a living on. Sean O'Reardown, for example, really wanted to give up his job as a clerk in Cork City Council or Cork County Council. But he never earned enough to live on off his writing and there was no hope and I can remember my mother fighting very hard with indeed RTE to try to get proper payment for the likes of Sean O'Reardown when his poetry was used in Telefish Scullia and published in booklets associated with that and again I think the view was that he should be glad that his poetry was being read and not to expect to make money on it. But my mother dug in, she put quite a lot of time into studying the laws of copyright and she knew that she had the law on her side. And I think 
the authorities with whom she was dealing knew that she was actually quite stubborn and that she would take it to court if she had to. And eventually she did win. Oh, it was something like £120 or something for O'Riordan. It wasn't a lot of money in present-day terms, but it was, I suppose, the difference between a warm fire in the winter or not having it in the damp house in which she was living. Mm, and, a, and a symbolic victory as well, obviously. Indeed. Know. And, of course, in, in the interim, he had friends in broadcasting and they had kind of gone to him and said, well, look, you know, this woman is being contrary and if she digs in, you know, perhaps these poems won't be read at all. And it was a difficult time for him. He, he didn't want to antagonise anyone in the media, naturally, because he was to a certain extent dependent on the goodwill of people like that. But uh, he did support what she was what she was after, and it worked out well. Now, other writers, actually, writers of novels and historical works and that kind of thing, some of them did, you might think they did rather well out of their books. I did all the calculations and tried to update the figures to present-day terms, and someone who wrote a, a work of fiction which, or a work of history which would have sold maybe 2,000, 2,500 copies through an organisation called Unclub Lauer, they could have netted maybe, in present-day terms, eight or 9,000 euro on that. So while you could make money, you wouldn't live on what you'd make, really. And I suppose the amount of time that an author would spend on some of those books, um, Sean O'Lewing on his two biographies of O'Donovan Russell, they're fantastic books and wonderful books, I think the most original books of history that rarely refer to. And it must have taken about seven or eight years. I'm not sure what he made out of it, but if it was the seven or eight thousand that Elon referred to, that certainly, because he had another job, that certainly wouldn't keep anyone going. But we must remember, it's not only the market for books in Irish relatively small, but very few authors in English and Ireland could live on what is bought in Ireland alone. They have a world market or a bigger market and that's what makes it so. It is I, I think we, we always compare ourselves to English writers or to writers in America but uh, it would be much more likely to refer to we'd say Estonia or Finland or some other country. Sarsha Dill were perfectly right to make sure that the authors got what they could. If they were in a school course of course they, they made a bit more and certain books I think is Bully Vorten by Dunchen Sheila Kalechert so something like 67,000 over a number of years. Now, that is pretty good. But, of course, the school courses helped. Um, and, Cian, this was, again, an example of empathy your, your parents clearly had. It was in the case of Brendan Behan. The, the bit of financial help as well given to Brendan and, I suppose, an eye kept on it. Well, um, I think Brendan did relatively well out of his relationship with Saoirse Dagestil. Uh, no harm in that. I mean, Brendan did offer us a book. I think he sincerely intended to write a book initially. The idea was that he would go to the Aran Islands, improve his Irish and write the experiences, which later became in English, Borstal Boy. But when he went to Aran, he found it hard to keep off the drink. He found it hard not to have fights with the local police. My father paid his expenses for a period of some months. It was, if you like, money down the drain, but a publisher has to be prepared to make investments, not all of which will come home. I mean, that's one of the things about publishing. You have to support your writers until they produce something, and you hope to get it back. You may not get it back. With all, with the best will in the world, you may never get it back. I mean, the difference between, as Alan was saying, a world market. Around the time that Saoirse de Castille was setting it up in Dublin, a firm called Alan Wingate, which later became André Deutsch, was setting up in London. Deutsch had £3,000 in capital. His friends told him, not enough, you need 10000 He said, well, 3000 is what I have, so I'll start. And he did. His fifth book was The Naked and the Dead by Norman Mailer. Take off. Saoirse Lagosdil's fifth book was Kleine Kille. 
take off up to 2,000 copies, but it stopped there. Uh, it sold out. My father didn't make any money out of it because of various difficulties with the production, and he hadn't the money to reprint it at the time. And that's the difference. Publishers lose money most of the time on most of what they publish. If they are in the right market, they make enough out of every tenth book to support all the rest. But if your tenth book doesn't bring home the bacon, then you're in trouble. And Saoirse still really was always in trouble. And my parents displayed, I think, great tenacity, toughness to keep the thing going for as long as they did. It killed my father, there's no doubt about that, eventually. I don't know whether we, he would have regarded it. I don't think he would have regarded it as a fair bargain, but he didn't have the choice. He, he was a very young man when he died. He was 50, and he was ostensibly in good health. He had had an ulcer, but he was a strong man. He used to ride a bicycle into town every day. He used to referee rugby matches, uh, but the pressure just became too much. He had an office in a stable beside it. It was a big old house. It had been his father's house, my grandfather's house. And it was just five minutes to go down one stairs and across the courtyard and up another stairs. And he would come home from the office after his day's work in the civil service, have his tea, and then either sit down in a corner with proofs or something or else go out into the office and write letters, draft letters on, on, on the typewriter. Quite honestly, he worked from 8 o'clock in the morning until 11 or 12 at night five or six days a week. He, he never took a day off and he never could take a day off because, again, one of, the, one of the things that grows on you if you go through the book is the pressure of work. There is a place where he writes to Martin O'Kine saying he, he's proposing to advertise his next book in these terms. And Martin, who was in bad humour that day, wrote back and said, I'd rather you didn't do these advertisements. I don't like them. And Sean writes back a rather pathetic letter saying, I've been working all Friday evening, all of Saturday, and until now on Sunday. I do not see myself reaching by tonight the place on the agenda where I would consider this advertising that I was proposing for you. I would much rather not do it. I would much rather take your advice, throw the whole thing aside, and live a normal life with my wife, as she constantly asks me. Mm. I don't think she did, in fact. I think that was a touch yeah. for effect. And I don't know, I mean, there were, pl- there were times when he could have given it up. When he could have drawn a line, cleared the books, more or less, he would have lost a lot of his own money, but he could have got out of it intact. But he never did because he felt he owed something to his writers. One of the important things, I think, about this book is the letters from writers as important as Sean O'Reardon and Martin O'Kine, which expose their vulnerability, how frail and how fragile these great men were, how much they needed reassurance. And my father provided that. And I I think as well with regard to the work that was being done by Sean and Breed, they did most of the editing, particularly in the early years. There were other editors brought in. But when you think of a language like Irish, which was non-standardised, where people wanted to defend their own dialectical usages down to the last T, and when you see some of the manuscripts that are in this book, how anybody managed to edit them, I don't know. And then on top of the notion of spelling and standardisation and rows with writers, and writers, Keane said, are very vulnerable. They could also be very cranky, as some of them admitted. And you take a writer like Diarmuid O'Sullivan, who was a very fine novelist, again a revolutionary novelist and um, he would write a book, give it to uh, Saoirse Lugsdil and then leave it there and he wasn't really interested in rewriting and he'd... (coughs) 
go on and do the next one. So he was that kind of a careless writer who wrote in a kind of a splurge and he was known for that. So the actual work of getting not only the manuscript, because many people didn't type, but were writing, getting through the manuscript and then editing it and knocking it into shape, it wasn't simply a matter of arguing with the Department of Education or with, with printers. It was a matter of arguing and working with writers as well. And then you had a whole business of publicity on top of that. It was a monumental achievement. Elon, uh, Alan mentioned there that the standardisation of Irish, that huge task is was of linguistic politics, really, and, and modernisation through the period from the establishment of the state. I think that was one of the things Sarshall and Dill really had to contend with and, and face up to. What challenges did all of that pose for them as a publisher? I mean, I think you, even in, in making this book now on the history of Sarshall and Dill, you yourselves... <laughs> Uh, ran into a little of this? Well, I think what you have to realise, there were three main dialects in existence, the, the Munster Irish, the Galway Irish and the, the Donegal Irish, and never the twain shall meet. They could har- they could barely, when they were put into one room, understand what each other were saying. The, the government was to the fore, I think, in promoting a standardised version of written Irish. Not a standardised pronunciation, but a standard set of rules for things like spelling. And of course, that caused a fierce rumpus because the Ulster people felt that the Munster people were getting all the favours and the Munster people were convinced that it was all Connemara Irish. And that continues, may I say, to this day. Uh, I'm married to one of those Munster writers and he is constantly fulminating about what people try to do to his to his texts and that. But my parents felt really that it was important to stick as far as possible to the standardised version in the written material. And of course, as a result, they would be lambasted by some of the writers, including Sean O'Lewing, for example, from Corcorina, a very gentle-natured man. But there are three or four really fulminating letters in the archives. There's only a piece of one of them in, in the book where he said, essentially, I want to be able to write fui and fa and fe anywhere I like, and all of them in the one paragraph if I would really want to do that. And I don't want anybody correcting my spelling or my grammar. Now, it got so bad with, uh, in the case of Sean O'Lewing, he never fell out personally with my parents, but in terms of the language, when he'd finished writing, you were talking earlier about O'Donovan Rossa, the, the history, he finished actually writing that about 1964, though it wasn't, in fact, possible to publish it until, I think, the first half in 1969 and the second half in 1979, because it was a very, very big book and would cost quite a lot to, to bring to market. And he stopped writing entirely in Irish for some time at that stage. But he did go back to that. And there's a funny thing in response to the letter, which is in the book about the fall and fe and fui. My father wrote him a letter in which he said, you know, I respect your views, even though I don't agree with them. The letter was written as Gaelge, and I shall preserve it. And I'm quite sure that in 50 years time, some historian will be copying out again and using pieces of it. And that letter was actually written in December 1964, almost exactly 50 years ago. In the case of our own book, uh, of course, I wrote parts of it. And although I was reared in Dublin and learnt a lot, of, improved my Irish in Connemara in the summer, I'm married to a very staunch Kerry man who, and I suppose I have absorbed a lot of his movenachas from that. And bits that I wrote would have had a lot of Munster dialect in them. Bits that Cian wrote would have had the Connemara Irish still in them. I think he's married to a woman from Letzirmore in Agalava. So... Uh, 
there would have been a mishmash in it, but the editors in Cloyer Hunachta, they did a great job of ironing out all that and hopefully you won't find it too easy to see which sentences originated in Kirkuhina and which originated in Rathgar <laughs> when you go back to read it, where we have reproduced extracts from letters from the authors of the time and there are very many of those extracts in there. They agreed to let us leave those as they were written and uh, even the things my father wrote, his approach to the Kaidan changed, the rules of the Kaidan changed over the years. So things he wrote in 1950 or 1952, he wouldn't have written in the same way in 1962. Kian, how did you work together, the two of you, in, in making this book happen? Because it's immensely rich. And the, again, the mixing of text, illustration, photographs, those many appendices. It took a lot of time. It was a very pleasant collaboration. We had no serious disagreements. We had minor differences of emphasis. Certainly in first draft, Elon wrote about three quarters of the book and I filled in some gaps as we went. And then we rewrote the thing and I probably rewrote more of it. We cut about 30% out of the final manuscript because it was just too long. And if I had all of my own way, I probably would have cut out a bit more. But you have to make concessions to your co-authors. It's a very heavy, dense book, but it seems to me that it's reasonably well organised and that the placing of the illustrations, which is no simple task, I mean, we sent them down the illustrations and as many more again, we had loads of illustrations. I would like to pay tribute to Deirdre Huhul who did that, who is the resident designer in Chloe I think, yeah, I think your parents would be happy with this book as well. Talking there about the collaboration between the two of us, particularly in the later stages when we were dealing with proofs and placing pictures correctly in the right place in the chapters and that. Uh, I live in one end of the country and Kian lives in the other and we used to come together We'd travel by train and we'd meet up in Mallow and we would repair to a very good establishment called the Roundabout Bar, which is just there close to the station. We'd arrive about 11, we'd have morning coffee, we'd connect up our laptops and our extension leads and unroll our papers. We'd annex a corner, which we hoped would be quiet. And we'd work there until three or four in the afternoon with a break for lunch and that. And we did that maybe twice, sometimes three times a week in July and August. And I really think, you know, they must have wondered what on earth we were doing there, but they were very, very good to us and they did leave us in peace and facilitated us as far as they could. Now you know what we were at and thank you. <laughs> Alan, Crane Achille, um, it was the, the, you know, this iconic book and, and uh, as Kean said, you know, the, the fifth book didn't quite bring in the fortune, but it did really cement the reputation of Saoirse Agastil and as was is this extraordinary moment in, in modern Irish writing. You have made a version, a translation into English, the first into English was it being published next month. Yes, it is by both Chloe Connacht and Yale University Press in the States and there's a very interesting chapter here about the efforts to translate Crane Killer and, and other works as well uh, during the 50s and during the 60s and many people were approaching, Thomas Kinsley, the poet, was approaching, he said he was too busy, other people wrote bits of them. I think there were several versions done that were unsatisfactory. It certainly was translated into uh, Norwegian later on. Uh, there is a translation done by an American student, I think, in California but again for some reason that has never been published and um, 
Miala Coniela Cloyer Honacht got together with several writers and he asked them to write some bits of it, maybe 20 pages, uh, which I did. I was one of the people chosen. And then after he gave it out to readers and he came back and he said, uh, some people like you or so, will you do it? And I thought about it and decided to have a go at it. So it is done. And uh, it took me about a year, year and a quarter there to do it by just simply sitting down and doing it. It was a very difficult thing to do because this is the Irish of... Martin O'Kine's youth and most of the people in the book, even though they're all dead, when they were alive, they would have been born in the late 19th century. And that kind of very rich idiomatic Irish has changed quite a deal, even in the, the, the strongest Irish-speaking speak, Irish areas. And then you're trying to put English into the mouths of these people. And you're working with the difficulty that um, do, what kind of English do you turn it into? And that's maybe a debate for another day. But it was a matter of getting an idiom that I suppose in the first place that I was comfortable with, that I felt I could work with, and that was doing justice to the, the one I would say to the energy of the book I wasn't that interested in being as literal, literal as I could for the simple reason that Martin O'Kine when he translated wasn't very literal and I, I have evidence for some of the things that Martin O'Kine did when he was translating himself so I felt that Martin O'Kine somewhere uh, beyond my shoulder saying yeah you know you can have a go at this you can be a bit creative you can make it up along here I wasn't adding to it but I was doing it in my own way which is simply the only way it could be done but it will come out and um I hope people will read it and people who have heard about Crainachilla but don't have enough Irish or simply didn't want to read it in the original, which they should if they can, uh, would at least have a go at my own translation. And the the title uh, you've opted for, The the Dirty Dust. I was toying around with obviously Graveyard Clay or some word that would would be correct, but I was thinking that, uh, you know, it could have something like Six Feet Under. Martin's books, Cush Coelaid and Brian Brauch, Crainachilla, I think the alliteration was probably important at some level and then I was thinking of the um, phrase in the, the Bible in English, dust thou art and unto dust thou shalt return. I had a whole lot of titles that I was playing around with, like Graveyard Gabble. I was having fun with them. I'd never use that, of course. Or, or as somebody said to me, it should be a hundred years of verbitude. You, know, you could make up a lot of... I was having fun with these. But I thought that this was suitable, maintaining the alliteration and at the same time referring to the fact that it was it was dust. Although there, re- there are people who say that the Crane Achille Cray can mean earth. It also means belief. So there's a pun there that you simply can't get. When you translate, there are things you don't get. And uh, Kian, uh, one of the appendices in in your own book uh, with Elan is dedicated to uh, you know notes on Crane Achille, on Graveyard Clay. The relationship between O'Kine and your parents, I think, a very close one. It was always very close for, for several reasons. Number one, they got on well together, except when they were fighting. And <laughs> number two, the book was of colossal importance, not just to Saoirse Agustil, but to the whole self-belief of the revival of Irish writing, of the publishing industry in Irish. It was Cáin and the rumpus that followed it and the letters to the papers and so on and so forth and people asking questions in the law. It was all that which led Sean Moylan a year or two later, when he was Minister for Education, to set up something called Bardnellaur Gaelge, uh, the Irish Books Board, which administered a scheme of grants. And it was that scheme of grants which, up to a point, nourished Sorshele still for another 30 years, and also nourished a whole swathe of other publishers, some of which Alan has mentioned. None of that would happen, I think, without Kleine Kille, because Kleine Kille showed that there was life in the beast, you know, that there were writers of note out there, and Sean Moylan, who was, a, who was an interesting and uh, an underrated person, took the opportunity. I, I was just wondering, supposing Sean O'Hagerty had published a few books, had lost a bit of money, had become discouraged and gone home, 
Who would have published Xenia Killer? Would it have been published? I don't think it would. I don't see who would have published it if my father hadn't done it. That, I think, is why it was worth it to do what mm. my parents did, and I do think it was worth it. It, it obviously made a big splash at the time. If you look at one of the editions, a reprint of the original one, which came out sometime later on the sides, on the blurbs at the, at the back sides of the book, there are many quotations of reviews that were made. I'm not sure how many reviews of Crane and Killer, but it must have been close to 20. And this would, small things in the Irish Independent or in the, uh, the Irish Press, in the Irish Language magazines, in the Gorda magazine. In other words, I would say that it was reviewed more often than just about any other Irish book. And you would be hard put now to get a review nowadays, whereas Crane made that impact because of Martin O'Kane, because of Sorsha Hillensdale, and because of the publicity, because again, there's stories in it when when the very first book that Sorsha Hillensdale brought out, which is uh, Toon Tele by Seamus O'Neill, a novel, a very modern novel at the time. I don't think it's a very good novel, but that's, a, that's, that's my own bias. But Breed was going around to shops asking them to take it, and they were very resistant to doing so. But when it eventually actually sold, I think maybe 2,000 copies or close on it. Anyway, a bookseller said, yeah, books in Irish do sell and so it began to open the gates. So there were many stages along the way that opened the door for somebody else along the way. And again, if it wasn't for, I think, Borden and Orgueil, certainly you wouldn't have had the other publishers come along. Maybe somebody would have published Crane Killer, but it certainly would have happened at that time. Alan uh, Breed went round to ask the shops to take the book. Uh, What people may not know is that then uh, they would pay a small retainer to a number of university students to go around to the same shop and buy copies of the book, thereby creating a slightly artificial trade, but convincing, making sure that the the shopkeepers knew where the books were and so on. And certainly it succeeded. Eileen, editorial input is very important as well. A figure like Brendan O'Heher in in terms of of what, you know, his advice, his his eye and, and his time. Yes, in around, I think it was 1954, it became clear to my father that he didn't have time himself and my mother, who did a lot of the editing, they didn't have time to do it all themselves and they were looking around for someone. The work was offered to Martin O'Kine, but he said it would spoil him for writing, first of all, and secondly, it would it might spoil a good relationship as well. But they did, they were lucky to get the services of Brendan O'Hare, who was an excellent editor, and he stayed with the company for perhaps about a year and a half before eventually parting company. Well, it's in any language, it's difficult to get a good editor and to get one who's also well-versed in Irish and in the literal Caidonach was virtually impossible. But uh, work was farmed out on a part-time basis to a number of different editors, and there's a long list of them there in the book, some of them indeed university trained by Martin O'Kine himself at a later stage. Eileen, uh, mentioning Brendan O'Hare, his book, Ligtinigahu, later, linked to Sarsha Lugastil and something of a bestseller. Yes, it uh, headed the list of hardback books, English or Irish, in the country in the year of its publication. When O'Hare left his job with Sarsha Lugastil because he wanted to do this, that and the other, my father wrote him a, a letter advising him to perhaps think of becoming a journalist or finally writing a novel. And he paid him, I think it was, I'm not sure, was it £25 or £50 advance on the novel? And every couple of years, a letter would come about that advance and that the book would be appearing soon. But Brendan, he was busy earning his living and he didn't have the time to devote to it. But in, I think, 1975, he got a, a bursary from, I think, the Irish American Foundation and Forest Gael Veracanach. I think it was something like £2,000. But it was enough to devote time to writing this novel, uh, Lig which was later translated and sold also in 
English has lead us into temptation. And it was a wonderful seller and it's also a great read. If you haven't read it, you should go back and do so. And again, a link to Trinity College. I think the um, the bust of O'Kine in, in Trinity came from, from your family. It came from Sarsha still, yeah. Well, Martin was working in Ranogan Ashtahora uh, or Ranogan Chaidon. He was working for the state on, I suppose, the new Kaidan, and he really hated that. He wasn't happy with the standardisation. He wasn't happy with the choices they were making. He would have been an excellent teacher, but he had fallen out with too many of the church authorities to get a job in teaching. And he was very fortunate that Trinity had the vision to give him a job as Professor of Irish when a position became vacant. Remember, this was before the days of writers in residence. It's commonplace now. But when Martin was first appointed to the staff of Trinity College. All he had was the qualification for primary teaching and it was a bold step by Trinity. Yeah, he was a friend of Dahi Ohuina, David oh, Green, his professor, course, which yes. helped. And I think professors at that time had a lot more power in appointing people <laughs> than they've had in, in recent times. I should say that we've been talking about a number of classics and mentioned Greene Killen and Sean O'Leardown and others as well. But they, they produced some wonderful classics and books that, as I said, aren't referenced very often. I mean, Ernest Blythe wrote three volumes of autobiography, which are extraordinary works in their own, because Blythe was a central character, both in, in Irish politics and in Irish art for quite a long time. And Blythe wrote a particularly difficult kind of Irish. Um, in other words, he made up his own words, he made up his own idioms, and he was very stubborn about it. But there are three remarkable books. And also the, I remember a history book, which was about the Cistercians coming to Ireland, Mellifont Abbey. And it's, and it's a little known corner of Irish history and the politics that was involved in the 12th and the 13th century. That, that's a wonderful book. The book on Deneen, the, the, uh, again, this was a, a book of two people, Princeus O'Connelloin of this parish and Donagh O'Keelachar uh, wrote this and you can kind of see bits of Ulster Irish and bits of Munster Irish through it, but the two of them did it and Deneen was a fascinating character. It's a great book with uh, lots of appendices, wonderful photographs and um, that is one of the classics of Irish biography, I would say along with many other things that was done. Alan, as an academic, you must have been very glad of the work of Sarsha Lagastil in, in terms of bringing so much work to the readership, to, the, to a new generation of students. Absolutely. When um, Sean died, Martin O'Kine at the graveside in his oration said that uh, the modern Irish literature exists because Sean O'Hagerta decided that it should exist. And I think it was a wonderful way of putting it. But the thing about teaching literature is, you know, you need good books, you need good books that are presentable and to be able to teach Duil or Scushgilt or Sean O'Leardine or Martin O'Kine or Podigo Mwiloin from the Cerrigoeltacht or Ownery Lahain or Seamus O'Neill they all came Sarsielagsdil and I always tried in, in the colleges as far as I could to change the course every year, in other words change the books so that new books would be bought and they wouldn't be going on second hand so I had a half eye on what was happening in the publishing world as well. As it, it strikes me that in many ways that this book is a vision of Ireland at a particular time. It's not just a, the story of a publishing house and a handful of people with, with a passion and a vision for what, what was possible. But it's part of a much bigger story of, of, of the country and making its future. When you read it, you get a wonderful picture of this part of Irish Ireland, if you like, for a goodly number of years. I do think the publication of books and then the showing that books are important to thinking and to thought and to society and to the world and to our mental health is very important and this helps it to do it.
Thanks to you all, Alan Titley, Kiana Hegarthe, and Eileen Nigarald. Sarshil Augustil, Nijeg Karushakth, Gunijeg Oktasahain, Shkail Falshoraha, is published by Klo Irkonokth. And we finish with a glimpse of the future made possible by the pioneering work of Sarshil Augustil in publishing Martin O'Kine's Crane Killer in 1950. Here's Alan Titley reading the opening passage of The Dirty Dust, his version in English of Crane Killer. Don't know if I'm in the pound grave or the 15 shilling grave. Fuck them anyway if they plonked me in the 10 shilling plot after all the warnings I gave them. The morning I died, I called Patrick in from the kitchen. I'm begging you, Patrick. I'm begging you. Put me in the pound grave. The pound grave. I know some of us are buried in the 10 shilling grave, but all the same. I tell them to get me the best coffin down in Tim's shop. It's a good oak coffin anyway. I'm wearing the scapulars and the winding sheet. I had them ready myself. There's a spot in this sheet, like a smudge of soot. No, not that. A daub of finger. Who else but my daughter-in-law? Tis like her dribble. Oh my God, did Nell see it? I suppose she was there. Not if I had anything to do with it. Look at the mess Kitty made of my covering clothes. I always said that that one and the other one, Biddy Sarah, should never be given a drop to drink until the corpse was gone from the road outside the house. I warned Patrick not to let them near my winding sheet if they had a drop taken. All they ever wanted was a corpse here, there or around the place. The fields could be bursting with crops and they'd stay there if she could cadge a few pence at a funeral. I have the crucifix on my breast anyway, the one I bought myself at the mission. But where's the black one that Tom's wife, Tom the Craw Thumper, brought me from Knock that last time they had to lock him up? I told them to put that one on me too. It's far nicer than this one. Since Patrick's kids dropped it, the saviour looks a bit crooked. He's beautiful on this one, though. What's this? My head must be like a sieve. Here it is, just under my neck. Tis a pity they didn't put it on my breast. They could have wrapped the rosary beads better on my fingers. Nell obviously did that. She'd love it if it fell to the ground, just as they were putting me in the coffin. Oh, Lord God, she better stay miles away from me. I hope to God they lit the eight candles on my coffin in the church. I left them in the corner of the press under the rent book. You know, that's something that was never, ever on any coffin in the church. Eight candles. Corden had only four. Tommy the tailor's lad, Billy, had only six, and he is a daughter and none in America. I tells them to get three half-barrels of porter and Ned the Nobber said if there was a drink to be got anywhere at all he'd get it, no bother. It had to be that way given the price of the altar. Fourteen or fifteen pounds at least. I spent a shilling or two, I'm telling you or sent somebody to all kinds of places where there was going to be a funeral especially for the last five or six years when I felt myself failing. I suppose... The hillbillies came. A pity they wouldn't. We went to theirs. 
that's how a pound works in the first place. And the shower from Derry Lock did follow their in-laws. Another pound well spent. And Glen Booley owed me a funeral too. I'd be surprised if Chalky Stephen didn't come. We were at every single one of his funerals. But he'd say he never heard about it till I was buried. Alan Titley there reading from the first ever English version of Martin O'Kine's Crane Achilla, The Dirty Dust, a version by Alan Titley, will be published by Yale University Press next month. Next week, I meet writer Eilish Nguivna, who later this month will receive the Penn Award for Outstanding Contribution to Irish Literature 2015. Join me then. Till then, good night. <laughs>